This is episode number 283 with Scikit-Learn expert Andreas Müller. Welcome to the Super Data Science Podcast. My name is Kirill Eremenko, data science coach and lifestyle entrepreneur. And each week we bring you inspiring people and ideas to help you build your successful career in data science. Thanks for being here today. And now let's make the complex simple. This podcast is brought to you by Blue Life AI. Blue Life AI is a company that empowers businesses to make massive profits by leveraging artificial intelligence at no upfront cost. That's correct. You heard it right. We are so sure about artificial intelligence that we will create a customized AI solution for you and you won't need to pay unless it actually adds massive value to your business. So if you're interested to try out artificial intelligence in your business, go to www.bluelife.ai, fill in the form and we'll get back to you as quick as possible. So once again, that's www.bluelife.ai and Adelan and I both look forward to working together with you. Welcome back to the Super Data Science Podcast, ladies and gentlemen. Super excited to have you back here on the show. And today's guest is one of the key people behind the Python package, Scikit-Learn, Andreas Muller. So as you may know, Scikit-Learn is one of the most popular packages in Python for doing machine learning. In fact, our machine learning A to Z course leverages the Scikit-Learn package for approximately 70% of the models that we create there. So if you've done our machine learning areas at course, and you've definitely come across the scikit-learn package. And in this podcast, I had the pleasure of spending an hour with one of the key people behind scikit-learn. Andreas Muller has been supporting this package for approximately two to three years now. And it's a very exciting talk that we had. You will learn quite a lot of technical things. For instance, we dove quite deep into gradient boosting algorithms. So you'll learn about things like uh, XGBoost, of course, the famous and very popular, very powerful algorithm XGBoost. You'll find a lot about it here. Uh, also, you learn about LightGBM and hist grade boosting. In addition to that, you will learn Andreas's approach to solving problems, what machine learning algorithms he prefers to apply to a given data science challenge, in which order and why. We'll talk a little bit about problems with Kaggle competitions. Uh, you will find out the four key questions that Andres recommends to ask when you have a data challenge in front of you. You'll learn about his 95% rule to creating models and creating success in business enterprises with the help of machine learning. And finally, you'll learn about the Data Science Institute at Columbia University. So you've got a very exciting podcast coming up ahead with one of the key people in machine learning for Python. So without further ado, I bring to you Andreas Muller, the expert in scikit-learn. Welcome back to the Super Data Science Podcast, ladies and gentlemen. Super excited for today's episode because on the call, um, talking us, to us from New York, we've got Andres Muller. How are you going, Andres? 
Hey, I'm great. Thanks for having me. Very, very exciting to have you. Um, and you mentioned the weather in York is pretty terrible right now, downpouring with rain. Yep. I just barely made it here. <laughs> and uh, next week, you said 120 degrees, right? I th yeah, I think it's going to be in 120 degrees in two days. That's New York's pretty variable. That's crazy. 120 in Fahrenheit is 48 degrees Celsius, almost 49. How is that even possible? That's like, how you, have you ever had that before in New York? New York is just crazy. We, we also get like minus 20 Celsius. It's, yeah. Minus 20 Celsius or Fahrenheit? Celsius. Celsius. Well, Fahrenheit would be worse. Oh yeah, minus 20. Sorry, I thought minus 120. Okay. Yeah, that's crazy. Um, okay, wow. And But you haven't lived in New York all your life, right? No, no, I'm from Germany. So I, I moved here like uh, five years ago, um, originally to work for NYU. And um, like three years ago, I moved to Columbia, like Columbia University. Mm, okay. And how are you finding New York? Do you like it there? Oh, yeah. I mean, apart from the weather, I really like like, like New York. Um, it's really great. There's like a big data science community here. There's a big open source and Python community here. There's obviously lots of things to do. And um, like... I'm now at the Columbia Data Science Institute, and it's really a very nice institute to work with. Um, so it's like it's very supportive of my open source work. Okay, very cool. All right, well, Andreas, super excited to have you on the show. Um, I am looking forward to learning a lot from you. And first of all, thank you so much for your book, Introduction to Machine Learning with Python. I personally haven't read it, but Several guests have recommended it on the show to our listeners, and I've heard fantastic things about it. So um, congratulations, first of all, on such a groundbreaking book that's changed so many people's lives. And um, tell us a bit about like how, how you came up with the idea to write it. Oh, the story of how it got written is like, uh, it, it's a very long story, but I can, I can give you the, the uh, rundown. So actually... Um, I was really interested in writing a book about scikit-learn because there wasn't one available. And uh, someone from the team, Olivier Grisel, who has been involved with scikit-learn um, even earlier than I have, has um, started writing a book. Um, unfortunately, at the time, I was working at Amazon, so I didn't have a lot of time to um, help him work on a book. Um, however, like once I left Amazon, I had uh, more time and I really wanted to contribute. By that time, uh, the book w was taken over by uh, someone else, uh, Sarah Guido, who is my co-author on the book. And so, because Olivier was sort of was not as interested anymore, and so then uh, together with Sarah, we finished it off. It took like I think another year w from when I joined the project to to finalization. In wow. the meantime, uh, a friend of mine, uh, Sebastian Rushka, actually uh, published his book, Python Machine Learning. And I think that got a little bit more buzz than our book. But uh, so now there, uh, there's at least two, I think there's like three books on scikit-learn now. There's also uh, Machine Learning with Scikit-Learn and TensorFlow, mm -hmm. uh, which is also a nice book I heard. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so what's, um, what are some of the main themes of your book? Oh, so the way I, I wrote it is basically that it, it's written for programmers. It um, It assumes that you know Matplotlib, NumPy, and Pandas to some degree, and obviously Python, but it assumes that you don't know any math. So it tries to explain the algorithms in like an approachable way. And so there's no like gradients. I think there's a standard deviation 
in one place. But there's like, um, hmm. I'm, I'm not talking about the internals of the algorithms, and that's a del deliberate choice. Of course, there's a lot of good math books about machine learning online um, available. Like for example, um, one of my favorite books, um, Elements of Statistical Learning, which is like statistics um, statistics textbook, is really a great introduction to machine learning. And I mean, they are doing a much better job of explaining the math than I could. So, and there's many other books that do that out there. And so I really focused on the coding part and I want to make it approachable for programmers that don't necessarily do uh, know a lot about like linear algebra, for example. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Gotcha. No, I to totally understand and appreciate that approach. And uh, when I was writing my book, uh, Confident Data Skills, I, uh, I also omitted any mathematics. In fact, I even omitted the programming because I wrote it for people who might want to, like my dream was to, for people to read it on the train or on the plane without access to their laptop. And I think once you like um, make it laser focused on a certain audience or a certain type of experience, then people who want that book, they will be super happy. People who want to know the maths or you know the statistics, they can, or when people want to learn the math statistics, they can buy another book. And that's totally fine not to have everything jam-packed into one book. Yeah, so, and I heard from a lot of people that are reading my book and say elements of statistical learning in, in parallel. And you can get that one um, online from the author website. And there's a lot of other theory books that you can actually get for free online. So there's like um, a good compliment. Okay, gotcha. Very cool. Um, well, that that is, uh, you know, like we can probably talk about your books book for hours, but I also wanted to mention for our listeners who might not know you through your book or through your other work, um that you are actually one of the top contributors to the scikit learn package in um python that is that is really awesome well thanks yeah i mean that's sort of the main thing i've been doing for the last uh five years at least and i've been involved in a project i think like seven or eight years now yeah um and uh and so what's um Scikit-Learn, when did Scikit-Learn actually start? I think so, for real, it started about um, 2009, 2010. There were some like early prototypes, but it mostly got uh, really kicked off by a group in uh, Paris at INRIA uh, around uh, Gelvaroco, Alex Grafort, and Olivier Grisel. And um, all, of, all three of them are still uh, very involved. And... Um, Okay, and so how did you get involved like, in Scikit-Learn? Um, so I got involved basically during my PhD. Uh, I was working on computer vision and machine learning, and I was looking for a, a easy-to-use machine learning library, and so I stumbled over Scikit-Learn and started like contributing like very simple fixes, like formatting changes, typos and documentation, this kind of stuff. Um, then at some point, I I contributed some algorithms. Uh, I think the these were the uh, kernel approximations for support vector machines. I think that's still the only algorithm I ever contributed to Scikit-Learn. Mm -hmm. And um, so then um, after I did this, I think uh, I asked them to if I can participate in a sprint at uh, the NeurIPS conference, uh, then still known as the NIPS conference. And um, so there was a coding sprint after the conference, and basically um, 
the person that was maintaining scikit-learn up till then was, um, I think, an undergrad student of them was just graduating, and so there was no one anymore to take the job of maintainer, and so they asked me if I want to do it. And uh, for some reason, I said yes, mm-hmm. and uh, that that definitely changed the course of my life quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Okay, wow, fantastic! That sounds very exciting, and you're still doing it to this day. Uh, and uh, tell us, like, for for somebody who might, uh, I, I'm assuming that probably most people are aware of what Scikit-Learn is. Uh, but just to recap, what is Scikit-Learn? Sure. So it's a machine learning library in Python. It implements a bunch of standard machine learning algorithms that you'll find in textbooks, um, a lot of supervised learning and some unsupervised learning as well, um, feature extraction, pre-processing, model selection, um, model evaluation. Now we are also doing more like uh, model inspection and uh, we're going to start doing more visualization. So it's basically all the tools around the machine learning workflow. And um, the goal is to make it as easy to use as possible and really robust. Mm-hmm. And so I mean, one of the things that we decided to do, is, so one thing you will not find in scikit-learn is uh, deep learning because it's a very fast moving field with a lot of people working it. And um, I think there's a lot of great libraries for deep learning out there. Um, scikit-learn, does not do that. Cyclone mostly works on uh, tabular data. So, mm-hmm. um, and um, so there's no no image processing in Cyclone. But it was like all the classical algorithms that are even that are actually newer than neural networks, but like random forest, gradient boosting, support vector machines, um, k means clustering, DB scan, these kind of things. Mm-hmm. Okay, thank you very much. And what is your favorite algorithm out of all of them? Well, I think there's, uh, okay, there's my three favorite algorithms are logistic regression because it's super simple mm-hmm. and super nice and very easy to interpret and you can't really go wrong with it. Random forest because it also always just works, mm-hmm. um, which is pretty interesting and then uh, we actually we got a new implementation of gradient boosting in scikit-learn done by uh, someone from my team here at Columbia it's called his gradient boosting and basically implements the same thing that um, LightGBM or XGBoost do so this is a gradient boosting algorithm that is very very fast and very scalable what is it called again uh, it's called his gradient boosting Mm, his gradient boosting. Okay, cool. Uh, Before we had this gradient boosting uh, classifier and gradient boosting regressor, but they were much slower than what, like XGBoost, for example. And now our implementation is actually uh, a bit faster than XGBoost. Okay, fantastic. So we'll get into these uh, more technically uh, just now. But for for the meantime, what does it involve to maintain a package? So they're like it's all open source, right? Anybody can see the code and understand how it works. But then there are people who create these algorithms. Like you said, right now you have a new implementation of gradient boosting, which is his gradient boosting. Uh, so somebody came up with this idea to implement it and then created it. And I'm assuming different people had to test it, that it's working okay. And then you added it officially to the package. Is that how it works? Um, generally, yes. I mean, so one of the... Um, or there, there's several like... Um, 
issues and bottlenecks. One of the main issues is scoping. So deciding what goes in and what doesn't go in. Mm -hmm. The gradient boosting, for example, if you look at, um, for example, Kaggle surveys of what people use, um, XGBoost and LightGBM have been used very widely. They're widely used in the industry. They're really useful. So it was very clear that that's something Scikit-Learn needs. Mm -hmm. But uh, for a lot of other algorithms, it's not entirely clear if they should go into Scikit-Learn or not. Mm -hmm. There's like so many machine learning algorithms, it's impossible to have all of them. And everything that we add um, increases the maintenance burden, right? Mm -hmm. Everything we add, we need to fix bugs in it until the end of time. Mm -hmm. And in particular, if we're not, if none of the maintainers is very familiar with the algorithm, that's that gets very tricky. Mm -hmm. And so, basically, scoping is one of the uh, big issues. The other issue is uh, reviewing all of this. So, actually, I'm not really that much uh, doing the on the ground work in Scikit-Learn anymore because I'm I'm mostly sort of on a organizer uh, level these days. A lot of the work gets done by uh, Joel Northman who's been basically the, the main person to do maintenance and user support for the last like three or four years. Mm -hmm. And he actually mostly does this on his volunteer time. And so it's very hard for volunteers to find enough time to review all this code. Mm -hmm. So so luckily now we have, uh, I have two people working with me in, at Columbia that work full-time on Scikit-Learn. They're actually paid developers. Um, there's three more paid developers in Paris and one more paid developer in Berlin. And so that actually allows us to hopefully, so this is a very a relatively new development. And so that actually hopefully allows us to review more of the code contributions, but it's very hard. Like if so many people report bugs and um, contribute code, and this is very complex code, right? There's like um, a bunch of math usually involved and uh, there are subtleties in the algorithms, and maybe you only have the paper, not even the reference implementation, then um, these are very hard to review and it takes a lot of time to get to the quality that we need in Scikit-Learn. So that's one of the big bottlenecks that we have. Mm -hmm. Okay, okay, understood. Um, so not only do you have to add the algorithm, but then when people use it and they find maybe bugs or improvement features, somebody has to review all those contributions and see which ones will be added. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Wow. Okay. That sounds like a lot of work. Well, let's jump into gradient boosting. Like, I would love to talk a bit more about that because I've been, um, you know, looking forward to uh, every, like every time I have a very a, a technical guest, somebody who knows technical details a lot. Like, I know there's many things I could learn from you, but there's, it's not possible to learn everything. So let's uh, if you're to, if you're fine with this, let's talk more about gradient boosting. Um, and maybe to start off, can you give us like a definition? What is gradient boosting? Sure. So actually, so I'm going to explain it to you, but I'm also going to tell you there's uh, actually two cool blog posts by um, Nicola Uck, who wrote it, or his name is spelled Nicholas Hug if you are American. So. Uh, <laughs> H-U-G, right? Um, H-U-G, yeah. And so he implemented the gradient boosting, uh, the new and he wrote some blog posts about how it works. And he actually even gave a talk that you can now find on YouTube uh, that he gave at SciPy uh, 2019 last week. Mm. But so, but, but let me give you like the uh, quick rundown. So basically, if you um, 
it's easiest to think of it in a regression setting. So you want to you have a continuous variable that you want to predict given some features. And so what we're doing now is sort of like gradient descent, but we don't do gradient descent on say a linear model or a neural network, but we do gradient descent on the space of all trees, which is a little bit weird. But so you um, usually trees are used that are very restricted. So let's say you, you built a regression tree of like depth three or something like that, um, and try to predict your target. Because it's uh, a very restricted tree, it's not going to do a very good job. Mm -hmm. But it's going to be better than like just a constant prediction. Mm -hmm. So now you use this tree as sort of an approximation of your function. And um, you look at the residuals. So you'll see at what are the parts of the function that are not predicted correctly by this very simple tree. And then you build a new tree um, that tries to predict this residual. Oh, okay. And so in a sense, you can think of this as making uh, gradient steps towards um, getting, uh, like towards minimizing the residual to, um, towards getting closer and closer to the original function. Mm -hmm. Okay, and gotcha. So it's yeah, it's an iterative procedure where you basically build one tree at a time. Um, there, there's there's like another trick, which is you have something like a learning rate, which is once you build a tree, you don't actually use the whole tree, but you basically output you multiply the output of the tree by something like 0.1 or something like that, which mm -hmm. makes you go slower. So you're not really trusting every tree a lot. Mm -hmm. Okay. And this is so this is part of the bigger family of ensemble algorithms similar to uh, random excuse me similar to random forest where basically we know signal trees can fit data very well but they also tend to overfit and tend to be very unstable. Mm -hmm. So instead of using a single tree we use um, many trees but they're um, each of them is quite restricted and so we get something that is more stable and uh, less prone to overfitting, and if we just had one really big tree. Okay, so that that's that's basically random forest, right? Well, in random forest, like the motivation for random forest and gradient boosting are similar. In random forest, you build lots of trees that are all independent, and they're all different because you injected some noise in the process by resampling the the data in some ways. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. In in gradient boosting, you can also resample the data, but it's not necessary. In gradient boosting, you iteratively add more and more trees to explain the residual so, to explain the residual okay okay makes sense so uh the the concept is uh um similar in the sense that they both want to increase the stability without um having overfitting but at the same time the way they implement it is different and in, in the normal random forest you have multiple trees that are like like a democracy of trees basically they're voting for the result and they're all different because of how you sampled the training data for each one of them whereas in gradient boosting you don't need to sample the data you just uh whatever residual you have from uh, the first tree you use another tree to predict that and then whatever your residual you have from the second tree you use a uh, another tree to predict that is that right yeah exactly gotcha can you use an example of like um Maybe with maybe like a very trivial, imagine like hypo, hypo, hypothetical example where with some numbers, just to like put it into 
uh, perspective for the gradient boosting trees? Um, I, I think that's very hard without having <laughs> illustrations. So um, I think you can visualize it. Actually, there's also there's um, maybe another resource I, I might want to mention is the I'm teaching a class at Columbia every spring, and you can actually find the whole class on YouTube. Mm -hmm. um, so if you go to youtube.com slash Andreas Miller, so just my name, mm -hmm. um, you'll find my lecture series, Applied Machine Learning. And there's one lecture that's basically just about gradient boosting. So and that has a bunch of slides that give it like a more visual explanation. Um, mm -hmm. I think gotcha. it, it's it's hard to just talk through it uh, with numbers. I don't think uh, okay. I'll be able to follow myself. <laughs> no problem. We'll we'll add that uh, the link uh, in the show notes if anybody wants to check it out, get some more details on that. Okay, so that's that's in general gradient boosting. So how is this? Uh, you mentioned a couple of them, like LightGBM, XGBoost, and the new one, Hist Gradient Boosting. What's the differences between them? So, I mean, these are, they're all quite similar. They're um, all just different implementations. So the one that first innovated was um, XGBoost. And I think the main difference, like it was a very good implementation. So they put a lot of effort into making it work well. Um, and uh, then I think a trick that they did that previous implementations didn't do or is that they actually also considered the Hessian term in the computing the gradient. So in, in what I said, it was like very high level. So, but there's like, you, you can formulate the algorithm as a gradient computation uh, formally. And uh, they basically um, also included a Hessian term. So they basically did something like, um, like a Newton instead of gradient descent. And um, these two things together made this like very fast. And then another thing that I think XGBoost didn't have at the beginning, but LightGBM had was, um, so if you build a single tree, whenever you want to find a split, you have to um, basically sort the data. You have to sort by that feature um, to find where to split it. And that's um, n log sorting is an n log n computation, and that's sort of one of the most expensive things in building any tree. And um, a way to speed this up is to uh, do histograms of the data. So just ahead of time, you basically you or sorry, not histogram, you you bin the data, and so then um, you don't have to do sorting anymore. You just know the bins, and um, so that's like a standard trick to get rid of sorting is doing discretization discretization, and that makes it much, much faster. And so this trick is uh, implemented in both XGBoost and LightGBM. Um, and then there's like some other nice things that were not in the old scikit-learn gradient boosting. For example, um, dealing with missing values explicitly, or basically having the algorithm deal with missing values, having the algorithm deal with categorical data. Um, these are both implemented in LightGBM, for example, and they're also implemented in our hist gradient boosting. So usually in scikit-learn, you need to take care of um, encoding categorical variables using one-hot encoding, and you have to fill in missing values before you run any of the algorithms, because most machine learning algorithms can't tolerate missing values. And uh, But all tree-based algorithms in principle can 
uh, deal with categorical variables and can deal with missing values, but it wasn't really implemented in scikit-learn. Um, in the in the hist gradient boosting, it will be implemented uh, very soon. Mm -hmm. Okay, gotcha. And so, uh, LightGBM uh, adds the benefit of putting the variables into bins, makes it faster. And his GBM, what's what's the difference there? I mean, there's there's not really um, anything new about uh, histogram gradient boosting. It's mostly an implementation of uh, LightGBM. Um, the benefit is it's in scikit-learn, and so we have control over it. So LightGBM was an implementation that's done by Microsoft. It's uh, really great, but it's hard for us. Like we, we don't want to. Um, import their C++ code. We prefer to have our own code base because it makes it easier to maintain and integrate with uh, the rest of scikit-learn. Okay, gotcha. Understood. Um, and what about XGBoost? Was it, uh, what implementation was that? Sorry? XGBoost, where, what implementation was that? Oh, no, that's just, that's just the name of the implementation. It was, um, I think originally it was done by uh, what was called uh, GraphLab and then Turi, um, and is now maybe Apple AI or something like that. Um, I don't know, but uh, that was also just like a very, very nice uh, C++ implementation. Um, but b both of them, XGBoost and uh, LightGBM had like scikit-learn compatible bindings, which was very nice. Mm -hmm. There's another implementation that I should mention, which is CatBoost. Um, CatBoost was mm -hmm. published by Yandex. Yeah, the Russian works, company. Yes, that um, works very well if you have a lot of categorical variables. And they actually, they do some, some more tricks. In particular, they make the trees symmetric, which is quite interesting. Um, that, that seems to be also very well, uh, work very well. I haven't seen that much adoption yet, but I'm also like not following that closely what's happening on on um, uh, Kaggle these days. There was a paper at the uh, Europe's workshop last year trying to compare all of these algorithms uh, and this implementation, but it's like, it's very hard because it depends a lot on your data set, which one works best for you. And that's good, right? That means people can uh, find the right one for them in their specific situation. Yeah, exactly. And one thing I've noticed is that over the past couple of years, these boosting algorithms have become extremely popular and even though there's a lot of different types of machine learning algorithms out there more and more problems can actually be solved by simply applying gradient boosting and you know like from xgboost to cat cat boost and uh all the ones in between um what i what i've noticed is that they are becoming like the go-to solution and they work in many many cases so what are your thoughts on that? Like, why are they so powerful and why are they so popular? I mean, they're so popular because they work very well. I'm not, like, it's definitely um, one of the go-to solutions. Like, if you have enough data, I think people these days more and more go also towards neural networks, but, um, or if you can do transfer learning, then neural networks are also great. Uh, but I think, yeah, that's, like, gradient boosting is one of the standard solutions. and um, I don't think it's that well understood why they work so well. Um, and um, I mean, you usually 
one of the things about them is that you probably need to tune the parameters more carefully. So that's why I said like, I like to do logistic regression, then random forest and gradient boosting. Like random forest also always works, but it's usually like slightly worse than gradient boosting. But random forest basically don't need any parameter tuning to work. Whereas in gradient boosting, you have to tune the parameters a little bit usually. Okay. Um, one of the things that's also that's um, nice about them is that often, because it's more like because you do this uh, fitting to the residuals, it's more goal oriented in a sense than random forests. So you can get away with less trees, and the trees are usually smaller. So your prediction times are um, faster often than for random forests. Um, at least unless you're like very, very parallel or something. So the thing is, random forests, you can parallelize more easily than gradient boosting, but in gradient boosting, the model are smaller, both in terms of storage space as and they're like quicker in terms of uh, prediction time often. So that's quite nice. Mm -hmm. Okay, and so would you, uh, thanks, thanks for clarifying. I, I like this approach, you know, logistic regression, random forest, and then gradient boosting. If those first didn't, didn't solve the problem. Would you recommend for somebody who's starting out into data science that they just go and learn gradient boosting right away? Because that that's your, you know, that sounds like the silver bullet that can solve all problems. I mean, th there's not really a silver bullet, uh, but uh, more so in many, many cases, and you will people that do a lot of machine learning, you will hear it from them all the time. It's not really about the algorithms or the hyperparameters. It's much more about what is the data and how do you formulate the problem. Mm -hmm. So very often you will, so going from say logistic regression to gradient boosting can give you an improvement, but the improvement you might get from collecting different data or formulating the problem in a different way, or even just cleaning up your data might be much, much bigger. So, um, that's one of the issues I have with these Kaggle competitions. In Kaggle competitions, the data set is fixed, and um, you really you care about the last percentage point in your accuracy. That's not how machine learning works in the real world at all. In the real world, usually there's a way to change the data set you're working with. There's a, maybe it's very expensive, but there's some way to um, change the data or add more data, or um, maybe you need to clean the data. And it's also usually not entirely clear how to measure the outcome, how good the algorithm is. In Kaggle, you're given, you say you want to optimize accuracy or log loss. But in the real world, no one cares about the accuracy of the algorithm. What you care is about like selling your product or getting users to your website or detecting cancer. And uh, these are all very different from accuracy. And uh, often they're harder to measure. But and they're part of a bigger workflow, so um, it's mu usually much more important to think about how was the data collected and how how can I improve the data collection? How do I evaluate my algorithm and how does the algorithm fit into the bigger workflow? Wow, those are and some. These are... Sorry, keep going. Yeah, and th these are the questions that are like. Um, there is many talks that you can see by ex more experienced uh, machine learning people that say these are the things that you actually care about. And like, okay, going from random forest to gradient boosting will give you 2% better, but
but actually going back and collecting more data will give you 20% better, even if you have a very simple model. So understanding your data and understanding what your model does to the data is very important. And if your model is simpler, it might be more easy to understand what's happening. Um, so it's very, it's it's much easier to understand the logistic regression model than to understand um, a gradient boosting model. And maybe just just one more point is that um, a thing that I saw firsthand when I was at Amazon, and I think the situation is similar in other companies, is you don't really care about getting the last percent right because there's um, decrease or there's diminishing issuing returns if you uh, solve a problem like. Uh, if you take like, let's say you take a month to do a prototype and solve something like to 95% correct. And if it takes you another month to go to 96%, that's not really worth um, your time as a data scientist. Instead, you should probably go to the next problem and do the next problem like 95% of the way. So I think basically in many companies, the state where they're in with their machine learning is you find a problem where you can apply machine learning where it's going to be beneficial to the business. And then the most of the work is in defining the metrics and collecting data and so on. And then you put in a logistic regression model and it's going to be much, much better than whatever manual process was there before if it was even measured what was there before. But then instead of like spending more months to tune it, you go to the next problem and formalize the next problem. And uh, like basically just a very simple solution might be much better than whatever was there before. And um, that's probably uh, more beneficial to the business. Though, um, like if you're just came out of your machine learning PhD, like I did, it's kind of not really what you want, maybe not what you want to do because then you're more of a product manager. It's not about fancy machine learning algorithms because it doesn't really matter how fancy your machine learning algorithm is. As long as it does something reasonable, it's going to be uh, help the business a lot. Wow, thank you. That is, that is very, some very deep thoughts. I, I love your uh, comments about the questions and I completely agree. It's, um, it's a matter of what is it that you want to be doing for, for example, everybody knows DeepMind, you know, Google DeepMind, the company that uh, created the artificial intelligence that won the game of Go. Uh, they constantly publish research papers and do miraculous things with artificial intelligence. They're really uh, pushing uh, the boundaries of artificial intelligence. Reading their research papers is just fascinating. Uh, they employ about 700 of the top minds in the world across like London, Paris, uh, California, Montreal, and so on. Well, in 2017, Google DeepMind lost their losses as a company was $368 million. That's like more than a quarter of a billion dollars, like more than a third of a billion dollars in losses. And what they're doing is they're pushing, indeed, they're pushing, they're creating new algorithms, new cool things and so on. But what, uh, to your point that, as a business, that's not the priority, right? Like you, you want to make sure that you get the results. Um, and sometimes results don't require uh, cutting edge or maybe cutting edge is, is necessary, but like the bleeding edge top of the range artificial intelligence that isn't, doesn't even yet exist. That's not often required in order to get results. Yeah, I agree. And I mean, and there is like, parts of companies that are super highly optimized, right? If you look at the 
at click prediction at Google, or if you look at the, the timeline at Facebook, I'm sure at that places they care about like the last decimal points mm -hmm. uh, of the accuracy. But uh, that's not the case in most places in most companies. Mm -hmm. Very, very, very true. And let's just go over those questions again. I loved it. The four questions you said. Uh, first one was, how was the data collected? Second one was, how can I improve the data collection? Uh, and what, what were the third and fourth? I didn't have time to write them down. Oh. Something like, what is my algorithm and how can I measure the, how, it's, how it's doing? Something like that. I mean, so I think uh, the business goal should be sort of the first thing. Um, like usually do you have, I mean, there's, there's some reason you do this machine learning stuff and ideally there's like, there's a business goal that's connected to you, like sell a product, engage a customer, um, like, I don't know, make buses be on time. And this is usually a very high level goal that is not directly related to, um, your machine learning algorithm. Mm. Say like, if you want to diagnose a disease, um, then your prediction is not going to be, I diagnose the disease or not. Your prediction is part of like a bigger workflow where you interact with like uh, a doctor or like you run different tests and so on. So um, your prediction will only be part of a bigger process. And so you should be aware of what is the bigger goal I want to reach and how can I measure the bigger goal. But then you can also need to sort of measure usually on a finer, uh, finer grain scale the direct impact of the algorithm. So very often you cannot do like, I mean, ideally you would do something like A-B testing, but you can't do A-B testing um, while you're developing algorithms, right? So in A-B testing, you would have um, run your whole process, say either without the algorithm versus with the algorithm or with uh, one version of the algorithm or the other alg version of the algorithm, but you can't really do that if you're not really, if it's not ready to, to like, um, be, be consumer facing yet. If you're really bad, you can't be doing that. So you have to have some offline evalu evaluation metric that's a proxy that says like, um, how well does the algorithm uh, work on this offline data set? And so you should probably usually think very hard about what is this, this proxy metric that you use and uh, how does it relate to the real, um, to the real use case? So for example, um, like, let's say, again, we go to this diagnostic example. Um, you probably don't care about accuracy so much, but you might, depending on what setting you're in, you might care about um, a false negative rate a lot. And so then um, say you're screening for cancer and you want to make sure that everybody that maybe has cancer goes to a doctor and gets checked, then um, you definitely don't want to make any false negatives. But there, there's also a trade-off of um, how many people do you want to uh, have see a doctor. Yeah, um, you can just send so, all of them, right? Just send 100%. Yeah, you can, yeah, you can, yeah. And so um, how do you translate this trade-off into a metric? I mean, okay, it's, it's like, if this is about human lives, it's like very, very hard. If you're, uh, if you're in a business, very often you can um, assign like some business value, like if I make the sale versus if I lose this customer, how much does this cost me? And so you can assign costs to um, what the outcome of the algorithm 
what you expect the outcome of the algorithm to cost or to make you in money, and then you can try to use that as your uh, metric. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. And th that will help with the trade-offs. Sorry, I couldn't hear you. And that, that will help you with the trade-offs, help you understand what the yeah. trade-offs should be. Okay, so basically understanding the bigger picture of what you're doing, not just um, the specific metric like in Kaggle competition. So, so what does that mean? Does that mean people shouldn't do Kaggle competitions? Mm. No, mm. that means that they shouldn't think the real world is like a Kaggle competition. Like if you want to, um, there's, there's lots of very interesting data sets out there. And there's lots of interesting techniques, but and it, but it depends a lot on um, what what is your position in a company, or and wh what do you want to do really. Um, so there's a lot of cool stuff you can do with computer vision, but maybe that's not. And if you're in a company that is like medical imaging, then maybe you're doing exactly that thing. But um, if you're sort of in a more in a more broad business, then um, maybe these last percentage points are not that important and it's more about yeah the bigger picture and the overall workflow and so the time i spent at amazon i was 90 percent of the time that i worked on the machine learning problem was not on the machine learning problem itself it was about clarifying the problem formulating the problem talking with the business units involved collecting the data um, establishing metrics and so on mm -hmm. Okay, wow. <laughs> so how much time did you spend on the machine learning, actually? I mean, I worked on like my first project for like 10 months. And uh, yeah, let's say 10% uh, of that was the machine learning. Wow. 10% um, so, of that was machine learning and 70% of that was data preparation. <laughs> no, not only data preparation, but uh, also like even establishing what are the goals. So yeah. like... Um, so let's say you do something that is, um, like you do email marketing or something like that. And just then your boss tells you, oh, um, I want to have more reach or I want to, I, I want to have my email marketing to be more effective. Mm -hmm. How are you going to measure that? There's like 10 different metrics you can pick. You need to implement them. You need to like create a software infrastructure to log them. Um, like even thinking about what is the right training data to collect is is the first step. Well, that's even maybe the second step. The first step is what is the thing that I want to do? How is it going to impact me? And then what is the right data to collect um, for that mm -hmm. purpose? Mm -hmm. So in the Kaggle competition, someone hands you the data and the metric, which are the two hardest parts in a machine learning problem. Yeah, yeah. And even like asking the question, defining what the question is, like you don't need to do that in a Kaggle. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, we're, we're not hating on Kaggle competitions here. I think they definitely have a value. It's just that you need to be aware that that's not what happens in real life. Yeah. I mean, that's a very, that's a very small part of what happens in real life. Hmm. I mean, depending on what your position is, if you're in the setting where it is really about just tuning an existing system more and more, if you're in a setting where there's already a very high level of um, what's implemented in terms of machine learning and what's there in terms of infrastructure, uh, 
then uh, then that's maybe your main focus if you're in a company where there's less infrastructure and less um, use of machine learning probably there's lo lots of things around it that you need to work on first yeah no to totally totally agree and but what 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 is the solution and how can somebody who wants to prepare like i i still think kaggle competitions will get you uh, like a job, right? If you're the best in Kaggle or, you know, in the top 5%, you put that on your resume, that'll get you a job. Fantastic. But what if somebody wants to actually genuinely prepare for the real world out there so that when they do go into a role as a data scientist, which, you know, maybe they got through Kaggle competitions or something, they aren't caught by surprise and they, they, they know what to expect. They know what is going to happen and they know uh, that they can handle whatever is thrown at them. So w what is your recommendation? How can somebody uh, prepare for the real world out there? So what I do in my course is that uh, I actually, I gave very open-ended homework that is like, the, da the data is already collected, but then I leave the evaluation and everything else up to um, my students. So for example, um, very often you have information leakage. You have like a column that perfectly predicts the target. And um, then the question is like, should this be included in your model or not? That's a very, very common question. Um, and it depends on the context that you're asking it, uh, the question in. Or um, how should you split your data and training and test set is also um, very dependent on the context that you're, uh, of your application. So let's say, okay, I'm, I'm going to keep going with the with the patient with the medical example. So, for example, let's say you have multiple measurements uh, for patients, like let's say of their blood sugar, and you want to predict if they're diabetic or not. And so, it's very different if you have the same patient in the training and in the test set, or if you have different patients in a test set and in a training set. And it's not that one of the approaches is right and the other one is wrong. It's that depends how you want to apply your algorithm. Do you want to make predictions for patients you haven't seen so far? Someone that walks into your hospital and you want to make prediction for them? Or do you want to make predictions for people that you've already observed in the past? And so this is sort of, this is kind of sort of subtle assumption about the distribution of your training and test data that, um, that you need to think about in a real-world problem, and I try not to give give my students the the, the hand-picked solution. Okay. What you can maybe also do is like there's um, Kaggle datasets, and Kaggle datasets are um, much more free-form. So they are not competitions, but they're just datasets, and so there you can um, think about these datasets independent of like a very concrete tasks, and you can think of what are the interesting things to do? What is the natural task that's associated with these data sets, and how can I approach that? It's uh, it's still a little bit artificial because you start from a data set and not from a task. So in the real world, you will think always start from a task, from a thing that you want to do. Um, but the, simulating that is very hard if unless you're doing projects. Um, so, I mean, here at Columbia, um, one of the things I think that sets our uh, data science master's program apart here is that we actually have these capstone projects. And the capstone projects are um, joint projects with 
uh, industry partners, for example, like Bloomberg, JP Morgan, Microsoft, uh, Unilever, and yeah, I don't know, many more. And so the students actually work on a business problem, like a real business problem, together with a mentor of the co from the company and a mentor from university. And so there they experience this problem of ha like having to define metrics. Um, like how do you go from the business problem to the machine learning problem? And so I think having actual exposure to real problems is probably the best way to do it. Fantastic. And thank you. I'm so glad you, grew, you brought that up. Uh, so the Data Science Institute at Columbia, I want to do a huge shout out to Janet Wing for introducing you to me for uh, inviting and so that I could invite you to this podcast. And I think you guys are doing a great thing there. Like I haven't seen many universities in the world, like, uh, of course, data science is hype and like everybody wants to get a data science degree or university wants to provide a data science degree. But from what um, you've described and uh, from this example of doing data science uh, in with these capstone projects, I think that's, a, that's the best way to do it. And I think that's one of the things that um, would really boost people's careers uh, or people uh, really boost people into the space of data science. Um, and it's really cool that this is uh, facilitated at the Data Science Institute in Columbia. Um, so uh, tell us a bit about that. Like how many, how many people do you intake into uh, each year at uh, the Data Science Institute? That's a good question. I don't have the exact numbers for uh, this year, but I think, so, I um, I usually teach a class in the spring that I mentioned before, and I usually have like 150 students, and I think um, 150 is about the size of a cohort. Okay. And I think may maybe 170 or something. And how long is this degree? The degree is um, three semesters. So it's basically um, two semesters that are mostly coursework, and then the third semester, so th then, so the first semester is like the fall semester, then you have the spring semester, these are both of them are courseworks that then um, in the summer, most students do an internship at a company. And then in the fall, uh, they do the capstone project. Fantastic. So not that long at all. So like one and a half years. Yeah, one and a half years. It's pretty quick. No, oh, fantastic. And do you need like, a, do you already have a bachelor's degree to do it? Or you can start that as instead of a bachelor's? No, no, this is a, a weird, I mean, there's an undergraduate program at Columbia, but um, that's not at a data science institute, actually. That's joined between math and stats, I think. But this is a graduate program, so you need to have a bachelor, but the bachelor can be in like basically any field uh, as long as you have some of the prerequisites. So we had people that are uh, that had a bachelor in like um, English. <laughs> that's uh, awesome. Or architecture or... That's know, really cool. That's a very broad field. And and that's uh, and that's what data science is about, right? People coming from different backgrounds to leverage their relevant experiences and knowledge of the world. That's that's what makes this field so diverse and interesting. I think. Okay, well, uh, thank you so much uh, for for your time. It's uh, we've so slowly approached the one hour mark. Um, can you please share with our listeners where can they find you and follow you, or maybe get in touch? Uh, submit uh, a idea for Scikit, uh, for the Scikit package, Scikit Learn package, or uh, maybe take some of your courses. What are some of the best places to find you? So, you can find me on Twitter 
as a Muller, so A-M-U-E-L-L-E-R. Um, I am the same on GitHub. Oh, sorry, on Twitter, I'm actually M A Muller ML, A-M-U-E-L-L-E-R-M-L. On GitHub, I'm just A Muller. Um, you can find me on YouTube as Andreas Muller. So the whole course I'm teaching at Columbia is uh, online there. And you can also find the slides and materials on my website. Fantastic. Um, Fantastic. Okay, thank you, Andreas. And um, you mentioned also before the podcast, you're working on a new package called Dabble. Just briefly, what, what is Dabble about? So as I sort of tried to allude to, I think the bigger picture is much more important. And so Dabble is a package that tries to um, extract away the parameter tuning it by doing some of the automatic some automatic machine learning. Um, but it also tries to help you create a tighter loop of like looking at your data, applying an algorithm, and uh, evaluating the algorithm. So right, it's in very early stages, but right now it has a, a lot of things to do automatic visualization. So you just give it uh, a data set and it does some interesting visualization for you. And um, so there's that's already pr pretty useful, I think. Yeah. And um, the things that I'm working on right now is there's also just an automatic classifier that you can use that will give you results very quickly um, and just tune models for you. There, there's other automatic machine learning things like um, AutoCycleLearn. I'm not sure if you're familiar with AutoCycleLearn. AutoCycleLearn is a little bit more the trying to get to the, the last, last percentage point, finding the absolute best model. Where in Dabble, I'm trying to give you something reasonable quickly and then give you an explanation of the model. And so this way, I hope people will be encouraged to iterate more quickly and look at the data more, look at their models more, and spend less time tuning the parameters and instead like thinking about the problem. Wow, fantastic. And so this D-A-B-L, Dabble, is it yes. already available for people to try it out? Yeah, sure. Um, it's on GitHub. Uh, I haven't released the version yet. So as I said, the most useful thing right now is probably the visualization. But like, basically, if you have a data frame and you want to predict one of the columns of the data frame, you can just give it that and we'll show you lots of pretty pictures. Oh, fantastic. Sounds like a, sounds like a fun thing to play around with. Uh, so uh, whoever is interested, check it out. Dabble, you can find it on Git. And of course, we'll include the links in the show notes. All right. Uh, and one more thing, Andres, you already mentioned uh, your where you talked a bit about your your uh, book introduction to machine learning with Python. Is there any other book that you'd like to recommend to our listeners? Something that uh, helped you in your career or in your life? So I think most of the books that uh, that I would recommend now they were unfortunately not available um, when I started my career. So the one book that I already mentioned is Elements of Statistical Learning, which is a really great introduction to machine learning and available on your author's website. If you're new to Python, there's the Python Data Science Handbook by Jake Vanderplas. So that's, that book's a little bit more introductory than my book. So it start, gets you started with like pandas, matplotlib, numpy, and then there's a little bit of scikit-learn. So if you're new to doing uh, data science with Python, I highly recommend Jake's book. You can get all the Jupyter Notebooks for it uh, on his website, or you can buy the print copy. Um, there's another book that I really like that's actually um, written more with a few from R, which is by uh, Max Kuhn. It's called Applied Predictive Modeling. Um, it has a lot of very good insights about doing machine learning and um, predictive modeling in practice. So he has, I think, some accompanying code in R. 
but uh, you can also just read the, the book without looking at the code. And it's um, so it separates the sort of the math, the machine learning part from the coding parts, and it's really quite helpful. Fantastic. Thank you so much. We'll we'll share all those wonderful recommendations on the show notes for this episode. And of course, your book, which is uh, Machine Learning, Introduction to Machine Learning with Python. And on that note, uh, it's a wrap. Thank you so much, Andres, for coming on the show, spending your time here with us and sharing your amazing expertise. It was really insightful and I personally learned a lot. Great. Thank you so much for having me. So there you have it, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Super Data Science Podcast. That was Andreas Müller, one of the key people behind the Scikit-Learn Podcast. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and there were plenty of valuable takeaways. The discussion about gradient boosting alone was extremely valuable. Personally, I learned a lot from uh, that discussion about these types of algorithms. And of course, Personally, I learned a lot from that discussion, but probably my key takeaway from today's uh, podcast was the approach that Andres uses when solving problems, the three algorithms that he looks into, logistic regression followed by random forest, and if that doesn't help, then he moves on to gradient boosting. I think there is a great truth to First, checking out simple things, simple strategies, simple algorithms that are uh, that have the benefit of being explainable. And if they don't work, moving on to more complex things. We've seen this theme throughout with throughout the podcast with multiple guests, and Andres being one of the key people behind Scikit-Learn can also confirms it. So that's a huge testament to this approach. And as always, you can get all of the links to materials mentioned on this episode, as well as uh, links where you can find Andres at the show notes at www.superdatascience.com slash 283. That's superdatascience.com slash 283. And finally, if you know anybody who's a Scikit-Learn fan or expert, then consider sending them this episode so they can also learn the amazing things which you heard about today. And on that note, thank you so much for being here. I look forward to seeing you back here next time. And until then, happy analyzing.